two passages uh, from Scripture this morning. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, in the fourth chapter, the conclusion of the story that Vanessa began last week of Jesus' inaugural sermon, as it's called, at his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He had just returned uh, from his time of temptation in the desert, and coming back, he begins his ministry healing, and then finally uh, returns home, and on the Sabbath day is invited to read the scripture and to reflect on it, to preach on its meaning. The passage from Isaiah is a foundation for the ethical monotheism of Judaism and therefore of the ethical monotheism of Christianity and plays a key role. It's the cornerstone, as it were, the foundation stone of Jesus' view of himself and of his ministry. To remind you of what Vanessa read last week, the words from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, creating an equal playing field for all humanity. And this morning's portion picks up at verse 20 as he gives the scroll back to the attendant he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon Jesus, and then he began to say to them, Today, this has been told in your hearing. That's wonderful news. This is, a, this is a, a passage from Isaiah, which is an expression of hope, the restoration of Israel after the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon, that everything will be made right again by God. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus and his contemporaries lived in very difficult times. They were under the heel of Rome. They wanted freedom. They desired to be able to live their life as faithful followers of the laws of Moses, given to Moses by God at Sinai. They wanted to have a righteous nation. They wanted this freedom that was promised by Isaiah. So when Jesus says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing, their hearts are exulting. And all spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words. And they said to one another, wasn't this Joseph's son? He's a carpenter. And they then said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proper position. Cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do at Capernaum. He had healed people at Capernaum before he returned to Nazareth. And he said, well, then I true you, tell you truly, a prophet is accepted in his, not accepted in his own hometown. The truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years. There was no rain in six months, and there was a severe, severe famine in all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of the people of Israel who were starving and said, 
he was sent to the widow of Zaratha in Sidon. That is to say, he didn't help to feed the starving people of Israel. He went north to what today we would call Lebanon, another country, and there fed the poor widow. Hmm. And then he said there were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, who, of course, was the disciple who takes up Elijah's mantle. Many, prof, many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, except for Naaman, who was a Syrian. Now the people in the synagogue are starting to say, what are you talking about? Sidon, Syria, what about us? When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they drove Jesus out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and he went on his way. Amen. Imagine this scene. One minute, in the synagogue, people think Jesus is all that. And the next minute, they're riled up against him and they want to pitch him off the side of the cliff to his certain death. The chaos, the confusion, the anger of the moment. And yet he passes through them because he has his eye set on the goal to which he is directed. When I read this passage, I couldn't help but think about Gandhi's march in 1930, the march to the sea to make salt. In the midst of the chaos and the deep trouble and oppression by another imperial power, this time Britain in our own day, in the midst and out of all that confusion, Gandhi simply set out for the sea to walk 291 miles in disobedience to the British. Gandhi was employing the Hindu concept of satyagraha. Satya, which means truth, love, and agraha, power, truth power, love power. He had begun his work to overthrow the oppression of the British Empire when he was living in South Africa. Having gone to London, been born in India, he went to London and studied law. And then, not able to make a living in India, he had gone to South Africa, another British colony, and there began to practice law and suffered greatly because he was an Indian. He was colored in the language of the day. And he was not well liked by the British establishment. He spent 20 years in South Africa. He went for one, he stayed for 20, and created a nonviolent organization to resist the oppression of Indians living in South Africa. 
Ultimately, he returns uh, to India and becomes part of the Indian National Congress, a movement designed, dedicated to the liberation of the Indian subcontinent from British rule. Satyagraha, truth, love, power. He discovered that there was another way of responding to evil or to enemies. Very often, we think that there are two alternatives with regard to this. There is aggression, you can fight your enemy, or there is passivity or submission. You can simply submit. Those we falsely think are the two alternatives. There's a third alternative, and that is assertive, active, non-compliance with that which is wrong. Active, non-violent resistance. In the beginning of his movement, Gandhi said, we have three principles upon which our movement is built. The unity of all humans, the rejection of the untouchables. That was a great sin in India, this untouchable class, people who are considered to be subhumans. And then the last principle was resist the British in love. You can love the British, said Gandhi, by resisting their system. He was a great reader and was thoroughly acquainted with the world religions. And at one point, he was asked about his attitude concerning Christianity and his life among Christians in the British Empire. His response, which I've shared with you before, is that, oh, Jesus Christ, I love Jesus Christ. It's the Christians. I have trouble with. And so he begins this movement which ultimately leads to Britain leaving India. Now the history that follows is very complicated, but it's a, it's a history that's based now in the freedom of the people who live in the subcontinent. Later in this century, a young Baptist theologian, the son of Baptist and grandson of Baptist preachers, was studying at Crozier Seminary in Pennsylvania, having graduated from Morehouse College in the city of Atlanta where he had been raised. His father was Martin Luther King Sr., the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. King Jr. was deeply committed to overcoming the ravages, the insults, the dehumanization, the debasement, the evil, the injustice of racism in America, and wanted deeply to find a way to remain true to his Christian ethic of loving our enemy, as Jesus taught, but without using force 
he had come to the conclusion that the racism of America is built on violence. And so to try to overcome this inherently violent system with more violence would be a huge mistake. But he didn't know what to do until he heard a lecture in 1950 from the president of Howard University, Dr. Jameson, about his recent visit to India and his encounter with Gandhi and the concept of Satyagraha. King says this is a moment in which his mind was opened. It was a transformative moment. He dove into everything he could find, reading about Gandhi and his movement and his theology, his spirituality, and became convinced, he said, that the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed peoples in their struggle for freedom is active, nonviolent resistance to evil. Active, nonviolent resistance to evil. Later in his life, King would even say, Gandhi is the greatest Christian of the modern era. And so, as he graduates from Crozier and then goes to Boston University to uh, study and earn his doctorate and then ultimately ends up in Montgomery. And the movement begins over the segregated seating on the buses of Montgomery. This is not a movement that King started. It was started by members of the NAACP, among them Rosa Parks. But once it had started, King said, here is a place where I can put into action in practical terms the theory, the theology, the spirituality of Gandhi, of Christ. Both Gandhi and King transformed the societies, the world in which they lived, but they were not primarily social reformers. They didn't have a civic or political agenda. Theirs was a theological, a spiritual agenda. That is to say, the inherent rights of each human being to freedom and the resistance to the oppression and dehumanization of people by imperial and other heinous methods of keeping people down for our own satisfaction. It's interesting. It's Anglo-America that produces both the racism and oppression of India and the racism and oppression of North America. India and North America deeply shaped by the theology and practice of Anglo-America. And so King undertakes um, his movement, the Southern Leadership Conference, is a spiritual movement, the Southern Leadership Christian Conference. It's a Christian movement. He is Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., not Martin Luther King Jr. politician, 
he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., like Gandhi, a Mahatma, one who is revered, a sage. This is why we must always remember that the movement for freedom is not a question of politics. It is a question of faith and of trust. It's a matter, ultimately, of love. Love in our society is a very confusing term. It is used in so many different ways. I love pot roast. <laughs> That's not really love. Well, I mean, as someone said to me earlier this morning, well, with pot roast, actually, that is very serious. <laughs> or I, you know, I love you. But there, the use of love is primarily about an emotion. Whereas in the Bible, love is not an emotion. It's not a noun. Love is a verb. Love is a verb in the Bible. It's not how you feel. It's about what you do. And so both Satyagraha and the nonviolent active resistance of the Southern Leadership Christian Conference all come out of this love, which is powerful, more powerful than hate. That's why Jesus can say to love our enemies, because love is greater, more powerful than hate. King liked to say that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to show us the way. And almost 2,000 years later, Gandhi finally showed us that it can work. Because the church had diminished the teachings of Jesus to suggest that loving one another was primarily an interpersonal matter. Forgiving one another was primarily an interpersonal matter. It was between you and a person. But Gandhi showed us, King showed us, that love is a social phenomenon and that resistance to evil, active, nonviolent resistance to evil, is an expression of love. Not of hate, but of love. From Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in the 13th chapter. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge and have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body to be burned as a sacrifice that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, kind. Love is not envious or boastful, arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice in the wrongdoing, 
but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not human love. This is not emotion. This is not romance. This is the life force of the universe that Paul is writing about. This is the reality that Gandhi and King tapped into. This creative and recreative, transformative power that lies at the center of our lives, that is the heart of the universe. Love never ends. Human love ends all the time. Romance, poof. <laughs> you know? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this deep, it's like gravity. It's a force in the universe, the mind of its own. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. Things will cease. Knowledge will come to an end. For we know only in part, prophesy only in part. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I understand only partially, but then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. And so faith, hope, love abide these three. And the greatest of these is love. Satyagraha, nonviolent, active resistance to evil, loving the world, loving our enemies, loving that which is evil as God loves, not for retribution or for punishment, but for restoration and for renewal the fulfillment of God's dream for all of humanity, that all may dwell beneath their own fig tree and know peace. Satyagraha. Jesus showed us the way. 2,000 years later, Gandhi showed us that the way works. And King confirmed that Gandhi's experiment was not an anomaly, but in fact, it works when a people gathered with a deep spiritual identity and commitment that freedom, liberation, justice, peace may reign again. Amen.